have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are picking up where we left off two Lord's Day evenings ago, looking this evening at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You'll find that on page 987 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible, page 987, and I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this evening as we look at God's Word together in 1 Thessalonians 4. 13 through 18. And there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, the Apostle Paul, now shifting gears a bit, uh, writes to this young congregation and says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those, with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Horatius Bonar, the 19th century Scottish theologian, uh, brother of Andrew Bonar, Uh, It is said that he would every morning get up, and I don't know if it was every morning, but many mornings he would get up and he would walk to his window in his study and he would look out and he would say, perhaps today, Lord, perhaps today. And then at evening, after he prayed, he would walk to the window and he would look out and he would say, perhaps today, Lord, perhaps today. And it's one of those stories when you hear it that sort of triggers in you, if you're anything like me how little we actually think about the coming of the Lord Jesus, how, how much we ought to think about it as Christians, not in a sort of uh, uh, current event consumed sense in which so many tend to have an intellectual interest in it, but in a heartfelt desire for the coming of the Lord Jesus, for the consummation of all things, for the end result of what Jesus came into this world to do in his first coming and has promised to bring to full fruition in his second coming. It's the great hope of the Christian. And it was the great hope of this young church. The Apostle Paul had brought the gospel to them, and no doubt he had, in some capacity, taught them generally about the return of the Lord Jesus, that the Christ they had trusted in is going to come again. And we know that because in every chapter, very interestingly, in this book, the second coming of Jesus is mentioned. In chapter 1, verse 10, the apostle uh, praises them and says that they had turned to God from idols to the living and true God and were waiting for his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 2, Paul expounded on his own hope uh, in regard to his relationship to them when he said, what is our hope or joy or crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? You see, Paul was pushing this mutual hope that they were sharing in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 3, 
The apostle says in verses 12 and 13, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And so you see how prevalent and prominent the hope of Christ's coming is even for the newest of believers at that period of the fullness of redemptive history, at the foundation of the new covenant church, the coming of the Lord Jesus is absolutely crucial for their Christian life and hope. I had a friend who told me many years ago, and we'll probably hear more about this next week in the subsequent passage about the coming of Christ, but if you went through the New Testament nearly a third of the New Testament centers on the second coming of Jesus, not in any sort of uh, fanciful, futuristic, uh, uh, current event sense, but that in every sense in which the second coming uh, is mentioned, it has a bearing on the believer's life in the here and now at whatever stage and point he or she is living. In every generation, first century, 21st century. Now, there is a question. There's a question here as we come to this passage tonight. Why why has the Apostle Paul transitioned from a series of of, uh, imperatives about Christian living in chapter 4, especially about uh, walking in purity and holiness and sanctification and, and, and putting to death sexual immorality and then moving on to brotherly love and and charging them to let brotherly love continue and then telling them to work and to live their lives in, in uh, hard work and in that ordinary, uh, those ordinary tasks that God's given them. And then all of a sudden he says, but we don't want you to be un- uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Christ is coming again and here's what's going to happen when it comes. And it, it seems as though Paul has moved from the mundane to the grandiose. And yet, I think, as we're going to see tonight, all of it is meant to go together, and that Paul is actually moving seamlessly into this subject. As I've noted, he's already introduced it throughout. Now, there are really two reasons Paul is addressing them, I think, and one of those is that he is correcting their misunderstanding about the coming of Christ. They have misunderstandings, and they are, they are misinformed, and then he is writing Uh, to exposit the hope that the believers ought to have at the coming of the Lord Jesus. He's correcting misunderstandings, and he is seeking to stir up their hope. Now, notice that he says here, we do not want you to be uninformed. Paul has a way of introducing important things by saying, let me remind you, or I don't want you to be uninformed. And, And in that one little phrase, I just want to note this this evening, in that one little phrase, Paul is teaching us something incredibly important about the Christian life. He is teaching us that so much of the Christian life flows out from the truth of the scriptures and and the theological truths that God has breathed out in his word and that so often if the Christian life, whether in practice or in word, are not lining up, then it's teaching us that there's something that we either don't know or we have forgotten. Um, Sinclair Ferguson has this great statement about this where he, um, he says that 
uh, essentially that if we're going to have our lives come in step with what the Christian life ought to be, then we have to have a right understanding of the truth of the gospel. Here's what he says. A false understanding about the truth of the gospel will always inevitably lead to a false living of the Christian life. Confusion about the truth will always lead to confusion about the ethical quality of the Christian life. So the Thessalonian church had forgotten something or, or wasn't quite clear on what they should have been, and it was having an impact on their Christian lives. What is that impact? Well, it's difficult to know. We don't know exactly what the Apostle Paul's addressing. No doubt they had written to him questions or they had passed questions on to him through Timothy or Sylvanus, Um, but it's also likely he had heard uh, things that had been happening in the church, conversations that had taken place, and, and he understood that there was a deficiency. And you know, again, we don't know to the best of our ability. I think we can conclude on one hand that they are struggling with, the, uh, with their bereavement over the loss of loved ones. Now, think about this. They had come out of complete paganism. This is entirely new. There are not 2,000 years of New Testament church history. They, they don't have the Nicene Creed. They don't have... They don't have the Athanasian Creed. They don't have the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. They don't have the Heidelberg Catechism. They don't have Calvin's Institutes. They don't have uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, (laughs) thankfully. (laughs) There's a lot they don't have, unthankfully, and there's a lot they don't have, thankfully. And they have questions. And I think one thing that they're struggling with is how are we to view the issue of losing loved ones in light of what we've been told about the prospect of the coming of Christ? Now, no, I don't necessarily think Paul was expecting Jesus to come in his lifetime. Paul didn't know when Jesus was coming, just like we don't know. And it's a dangerous thing to try to guess when Jesus is coming. Um, Harold Camping, I think, has written four books realigning the dates when he thought Jesus was coming. We're we're not supposed to do that. That's very bad. Um, Paul says, we who are alive and remain. It could happen, Paul's saying, in our lifetime. He's not saying that it will. Um, and, And as the apostle is teaching them of the expectant hope they ought to have that Christ is going to come and consummate this world and and yet, he, Paul's just said to them that they are to let brotherly love continue. They are to continue in those loving fellowships with other believers and those meaningful relationships. John Stott, um, trying to figure out what Paul's addressing, says here, bereavement occasioned anguish questions about those who died. The Thessalonians had a theological question for Paul. Relatives or friends of theirs had died before Christ advent, his coming. They had not anticipated them. It took them by surprise and greatly disturbed them. How would the Christian dead fare when Jesus came for his own? Would they stand at a disadvantage? Would they miss the blessing of his coming? Were they lost? There were questions that they had. And those questions probably in some sense morphed into wrong understandings where many of them then would have said, well, I think the greater blessing is to be alive when Christ comes again. I think we do that in our day when people say, well, don't you think Christ is coming soon? I mean, all this stuff is happening. What we're ultimately saying is, I'm really more important than every other Christian that's lived and it should happen in my lifetime. 
as much as we should want it to happen in our lifetime. Um, They had probably said, those who are alive when he comes back, they get the incredible opportunity of seeing the glory and the majesty of the return of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to say, there is a greater blessing even for those who have died because they're going to be raised first and they're going to be caught up with him first. So there are questions that they have and Paul's addressing that and note that um, Paul uses a figure of speech to explain um, believers who have died. Notice in verse 13, he says, those who are asleep. In verse 14, he says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In verse 15, he says, we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have fallen asleep, those who have fallen asleep, and then he says in verse 16, those who have died in Christ. Um, Paul is not teaching the doctrine of soul sleep. Let me just go ahead and um, disabuse you of that notion. There is no such thing as soul sleep. When, when we die, our spirits, that inner seat of our life and emotion and energy and will and, and being goes to be with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no holding cell, there's no tank where God keeps all the souls. I know it talks about souls under the altar, that just means they're covered in the blood of Jesus. The altar was where the sacrifice went, it's a figure of speech. Um, and it's so much better than that. Um, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, you, when we worship, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Every one of our fellow believers who died, they are in the presence of the Lamb now, worshiping him every second of their experience there. You have come to the spirits of just men and women made perfect, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all. So why then does the Bible talk about believers dying as falling asleep? Well, certainly um, there is a a sense in which, because when we die, our, our consciousness of experience in this life is cut off in this world. Um, We can no longer communicate with those that we have loved in this world. My mother died suddenly five years ago, a little over five years ago, and someone well-meaning said to me, as I noted that I just wished I could pick up a phone and call her, and this person said to me, you can talk to your mom wherever you are. No, I can't. No. No, you cannot. I don't care how much You hear people say that. You cannot. There is a cutting off of our relationships, and that causes incredible hurt and grief and sadness and sorrow. Um, And yet, believers who die are not cut off from being in the presence of God and other believers who have died. Though there is an uncrossable chasm at this moment 
there is not in their experience with one another in glory. Um, I'll come back to the phrase, those who have fallen asleep in a moment, but I'll tell you another pet peeve of mine. Um, it's become popular whenever any celebrity dies to see everyone rush out and, and use RIP, 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 rest in peace. Um, it would be right for us to say of believers who, who were trusting in Jesus, you know, rest in the presence of Christ, to say of them, that's our hope and desire, we know that they're there. Um, anything else is just vain well-wishing. Um, so why, why does the apostle, and why do the scriptures, and why does Jesus even speak of believers dying as those resting in peace? Um, when scripture speaks of the death of the believers, it does so under the idea of sleep before raising the little girl from the dead. Jesus told the crowds, this girl is not dead, but asleep, Matthew nine twenty four. So the Savior uses that language. It's one reason why Paul would use that language. Um, when he took his disciples to the grave of Lazarus in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm on my way to wake him up. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, in a completely different context about the resurrection, says we will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. I think in light of everything Paul's about to say about the resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus has conquered death and how in his resurrection we will absolutely certainly be raised to the resurrection of the just if we are in saving union with him, our death and the death of our loved ones is as if they are just asleep for a time. While to the world there's a permanence to it, no matter what they say, no matter what hope they may grasp for, the believer can know, certainly, that the death of other Christians is as if they are just sleeping in the grave, their body laying there waiting for the Lord Jesus. You know, the, I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe the Westminster as well, speaks of believers still being united to Jesus, even their bodies, their bodies in the grave, in the ground, are still mystically, savingly united to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? While their spirits are in the presence of the Lamb, their bodies are united, waiting for him to come and awaken them, body and soul together, in the resurrection. And so Paul speaks of those who are asleep, those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead in Christ. Now, Notice, as Paul is correcting this misinterpretation, he first leads with a negative. And just notice very quickly with me what he says here. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, particularly in his day, uh, the pagan world, the secular world, if we could say that, was inundated with a grief that recognized in their thinking there was nothing beyond the grave. That was the prevalent thought. In our day, we have a 100,000 worldviews trying to figure out and say what happens. We've had Buddhism and Hinduism and all of the branches of reincarnation and monism and all these uh, Eastern religions trying to say that you come back and work your way into union with some great spirit. That's not true. But, but particularly in their day, 
there was a sense that this is it. We sometimes hear that on television, don't we? There's a sense where the world we live in treats this life as if it's it. read a report in the UN recently that the UN said the 21st century's greatest accomplishment was going to be the prolonging of uh, population aging, and that by 2050, uh, a majority, one in six or more, would live to over 65, which is a huge progress in what it is now. And I, and I think about this, and you think about the insatiable quest people have to just live here forever. The reason is they think this is it. And Paul says, if this is it, eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Uh, but this is not it. And Paul says, we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, Paul is not saying we don't want you to grieve. He's not saying when your spouse or your parent or your child or a loved one in whatever relationship in the Christian community passes away, you aren't to grieve. When Stephen dies, the first Christian martyr, it said they came and they mourned for him. We heard this morning that in Sunday school, Jesus wept. That was one of the marked features of Jesus, that he saw the enemy that death is, and he felt in his own spirit the pain of the loss of loved ones in this fallen world. He felt it for others. He probably felt it for himself. It is right and good. I I have sometimes heard well-meaning Christians say, you know, I want my funeral to be a party. Um, And I understand the sentiment And Paul's going to say, we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. I get that. There is something right about mourning the loss of a loved one. I drove with my dad uh, to the hospital where my mom was probably already deceased. And he was on the phone with the doctor who told him, and the wail. I have never heard anything quite like that. And there's something right about that. There'd be something wrong if we didn't have that. Something very wrong if we're either callous to or flippant about it. Yet, Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. So Paul's saying, beyond the grief, beyond the pain and the bereavement, there is an eternal world of hope that the Christian can latch onto because of Christ must latch on to. Otherwise, this world and its fallenness would be the worst place to live. Who would want to live in this world if this is it? With all the evil, all the hurt, all the pain, all the misery, all the sickness, all the infidelity, all the hurt in this world, all the sin and the evil and the worrying. Why would anyone want to live in this world if there was no hope? of God restoring and redeeming and a prospect of something better. And so the apostle says, let me tell you about this hope. Um, Now, before I do talk about the, the way in which this works, this hope that he exposits, I just want to say, you know, there's something really beautiful about this passage there is going to be a vertical dimension to the Christian's hope, and we'll hear about that. Christ is going to come. Here's how everything's going to work. We're going to be with him. 
and, and there's that vertical dimension, but there's a horizontal dimension that he's talking about, that the, the brotherly love that he's just called them to, that's, that's going to continue forever. Jonathan Edwards has this incredible chapter in a book called Charity and Its Fruits, and it's called Heaven is a World of Love. And what he essentially says is that in heaven, the love of the infinite and triune God is going to so be imparted to and communicated to every believer in heaven that every believer is going to love every other believer with the same love that God loves us. My dad said to me after my mom died, he really struggling with regret. I have so much regret, so much regret. I didn't treat your mother like I should. So much regret. And I said, Dad, you're going to be able to love mom perfectly forever. Not as her spouse, but as one believer to another who had a special relationship in this world. And there's not going to be any regret. There is a perfect redemption of our relationships in glory. Um, Paul says the Lord's going to bring them with us. Um, Nobody's going to miss out on that. Every believer, those who have died, those who are alive, nobody's going to miss out on it. Um, Now, as Paul does sort of unfold the mechanics of the second coming of Christ and how this is going to work out. He first tells us that, um, he says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The first thing he says is, let me remind you of the three stages of Jesus's saving work. This is vital. He doesn't just say he's coming again, so get excited. He says, if he died... Notice this. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There's that redemptive historical shift. He died for our sins. He atoned for our sins. If we believe that he died in our place for our sins to forgive us and justify us and reconcile us to God, if he rose again and conquered death, if he took the sting of death out, if he ascended to heaven and he's coming again, he is even so going to bring all those for whom he died and rose and ascended who are even now with him, he is going to bring them with him because of what he's done. Now, here's an interesting thing, and it's a question I never asked before. Why do those who have died in Christ have a priority in the second coming of Jesus to those that are alive? I think, the answer is quite simple, I think, in a sense, Jesus wants to placard his victory over death first, so that, as the Bible says, death is the last great enemy, the conquering redeemer will come and show exactly what he did. You know, there's that strange little detail in the Gospels, if you've ever been reading through Matthew, and, you know, when there's an earthquake, and 
it says a bunch of people were raised from the dead and went in the city and showed themselves. And you're like, who? Who are these people? <laughs> Why wasn't this in the news? <laughs> like, this is a big deal. What did people think when they saw these people? Why did it happen? Well, it happened because in the resurrection of Jesus, he is the guarantee of the resurrection of his people. He has conquered death for them. And it was like a little tremor preparing for the earthquake of the resurrection for believers. It was a little foretaste. Um, I love the words of the hymn, Jesus lives and so shall I. And in one of the lines it says, um, death is now my entrance into glory. Death is now my entrance into glory. By nature, death is our entrance into eternal judgment. By God's grace in Christ, it's our entrance into glory. Isn't that awesome? He takes the thing that was the great enemy to eternal perdition and turns it into the doorway to glory for those that are in him by faith. Now, Paul, having given that sort of three stages of Christ's redeeming work, now speaks of other aspects of what's going to happen in that moment. Now, one of the interesting things, I just say this as an aside, is it doesn't matter what view of the millennium you have. We should all be able to get on board with what Paul's saying in this passage. So if, if we came to this passage and we, we try to figure out what millennial view we have, we're, we're missing the point. Every single Christian, whether you're pre-post or amillennial, should all be able to agree this is our general consummate hope. Christ is coming again. He is bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in him. Every eye will see him. It will be a public spectacle, very much unlike his first coming. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The second coming of Jesus is going to be very much unlike his first coming. His first coming, he came in obscurity. He grew as a root out of dry ground. He had no former comeliness that we should behold him. There was no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah says. He, he was low and despised. He was a man of sorrows. He had 12 disciples. They were, they were not uh, riding in on war horses. He's coming back in glory and majesty. Every eye is going to see him. There's a trumpet, God says. He'll come with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Trumpets in the scripture, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, and anytime they prepared for battle, there were trumpets. Whenever God was doing a mighty work, there were trumpets. Whenever God was proclaiming something in redemptive history, it was often accompanied with trumpets. Here, on the last day, every eye will see him, the Bible says, even those that pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so come Lord Jesus. Um, it'll be a terrible day for, for the unbelieving world. But here it is nothing but hope for those of us who are trusting in Jesus. Um, verse 17, Paul says, We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, it's very interesting what he, he's saying here now is Christ is the centerpiece of his coming and the consummation. I don't know if you've ever realized this, but whenever the New Testament speaks about heaven, almost without exception, 
it speaks in terms of believers being with Jesus. So Jesus says in John 14 to his disciples, don't let your heart be heavy, sorrowful, unbelieving. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many many dwelling places, not mansions, abodes. Um, I know if you like Elvis, you sang mansions, but abodes, dwelling places, temple precincts in glory. With Jesus, he says, and I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to the cross to shed my blood, to secure your redemption, and then to the Father in the ascension. That's where he's going. He's not building houses in heaven. He goes to the cross. He lays down his life. He secures an eternal dwelling. He goes to the Father. He says, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's how Jesus speaks of heaven. There's almost a sense where the New Testament doesn't give us more about heaven because it doesn't want us to move our focus off of the centerpiece of heaven, which is being with Christ. Paul says, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I I have met people who have oftentimes, it seemed to me, had more thoughts of heaven being with other people than with being with Jesus. And there's something terribly wrong with that. If I love my wife or my children and desire to be with them more than with Christ, there's something wrong with that. So this is meant to stir up in us a desire to be with the Lord. So we will meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. So, Paul is not so much saying, where are we going? He's saying the most important question is, with whom will we be? So here's the deal. Our lives are so short. Um, they, they, they pass so quickly. Um, when you're young... You really do think you're going to live forever. Um, Children die all the time. Young children die all the time. Um, Our lives are going to be passing very soon. And yet we have the hope of all hopes. Because Christ has died for us. He has stepped out of the tomb for us. He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, and he is coming back for us. He is coming back for us. So that all the things that weigh us down, all those concerns, they're all so menial. Do you understand? The things that we feel are the heaviest are so menial. Um, I'm, I'm not saying... Quit your job, sit around, read your Bible, and just daydream about Jesus coming back. Paul said right before this, work hard, don't be dependent on other people. Be faithful as you wait for him. But all those things that we allow to weigh us down, there is nothing compared to the fact that this is our hope. This is, this is the hope set before us. 
so that all of our focus and attention, if I can just leave you with this thought, in raising our children, in our marriages, in our work, in everything that we do should be focused on that. Being with Christ, hoping in his coming. You know how the Bible ends? Come, Lord Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's, that's the focus of the Bible, that our heart's desire would be to be with Christ and one another. And I want to leave you with this too. Paul says at the end of this passage, comfort one another with these words. When was the last time you comforted another believer with the hope of Christ coming? I had to ask myself that question honestly this week and thought, you know, it's been a long time, I think, since I've really comforted another believer with the hope of Christ's coming. Paul says, take all that truth, all that theology, and go and encourage one another with what is of most importance. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we all too often have our hearts and our desires set on things that are far too trite and fleeting. Um, Lord, we are often weighed down with the cares of the world, the desires, uh, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. We um, often spend our days trying to secure for ourselves things um, in a place where we will not ultimately be. We pray, our God, that you would lift our hearts up to glory, that you would make us a people whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray, our God, that you would make us a people who are hoping in the coming of our Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would come. We pray that you would make us a people who are crying out constantly for you to come that you would set our hearts free from this world and that you would give us a great longing to be with you, to see your face, to praise you, to live with you forever with your people. We pray, our God, that you would do that for us both tonight and through the remainder of our lives. We pray that you would give us grace to encourage one another with these words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.